0: Welcome to Maternal Health Innovation, a podcast from the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where we connect around culture, measures, and best practices in maternal health. The purpose of these conversations is to authentically explore what's working well and think together about the ways to strengthen care for birthing parents, families, and those seeking to serve them. At Maternal Health Learning Innovation Center, We're thrilled for the opportunity to speak with experts on ways we can better serve birthing people and advance maternal health equity. My name is Leslie Derizette, and I'm an implementation specialist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I work on maternal and health child projects housed at Gillings School of Global Public Health. Today, I'm talking with Vanessa Caldari, founder of Mujeres Ayudando Madres, a nonprofit in Puerto Rico that supports birthing people From gestation to parenthood, and helps them make informed birthing decisions. She is also the program director of the Midwifery Program Southwest Wisconsin Technical College. Today, we're talking about the importance of midwife support, particularly in Puerto Rico. So, Vanessa, you are with uh, Mujeres Ayudando Madres, Women Helping Mothers. Can you tell me a little bit more about it?
1: Yes, so Mujeres Ayudando Madres, which is Mam is our trademark name or Centro Mam which is the center that we, talk, we work through. We are a nonprofit grassroots organization that was registered in Puerto Rico in 2007 but it actually started in 2005. And basically the the reason for Mam is to really give access to what midwifery care is and the alternatives to, for birthing people in Puerto Rico and beyond. With education, support, uh, in the past years we've done grant writing for funding to help actually provide subsidized care for people who are looking for this service and this kind of education and through support throughout the perinatal period.
0: That's great. And um, you have quite a few staff that work with you around the island. Can you tell me a little bit more about who's on your staff and and what are some of the services that they're providing to the island?
1: Yes. So we have a team of midwives. um, Myself, I'm uh, one of the midwives and also uh, the director, executive director and founder of the organization. And we have Michelle Perez-Chiquez. She's also a co-founder. She's been with us for about 10 years. Dulas, who is now a student midwife, uh, Paloma Hernández, and she's also a perinatal educator. Another midwife, Chariana Feliciano, who studied with us, and then she's onboarded now as one of our staff midwives. Uh, We also have a collaborating obstetrician, Dr. Gomez, and a collaborating pediatrician, uh, Yvette Piovanetti. And we also do collaborative care with perinatal psychologists, other people within the community and organizations that help provide services, direct services to our community in Puerto Rico.
0: That's amazing. It sounds like an amazing staff and and it sounds like you've been around, you know, for almost 15 years. So you've really grown over the last few years and we had the pleasure of meeting you last year uh, through some uh, CARES Act funding and, and really got to know you and your staff and the amazing innovative work you do on the island. Tell me a little bit about the mission and the vision of MAM.
1: So Centro Mom was really founded because I realized that midwifery care, especially in Puerto Rico, was really for people with access to the economy, the economics, to be able to have that care or access to education. And I didn't want midwifery care to be a a privilege, right? More than an option and a right for people to explore what midwifery care is about, that model of care, even if you don't want to have a baby with the midwife, but you know that these models work and that they're happening in other places outside of Puerto Rico. And also to find ways to fund these services, because it is a private service that at this moment, the government does not subsidize or support. So we had to look, alter- we had to find alternative ways to really support the growth of midwifery on the island.
0: Wow. Wow. And talk a little bit about your collaboration with um, OBs, pediatricians, and family medicine. As you said, you do have an OB who is his, one of your collaborating partners as well as a pediatrician. And because midwifery is, you know, what some people might think outside the box of traditional maternity delivery in a hospital system. Um, talk about how your collaborations really came about with with these other providers.
1: Well, we've, you know, in Puerto Rico, we need to have collaborating physicians to do our work, right? They have to, they don't do oversight, but it's just a part of, at this moment, the standard of care uh, with uh, the island. So years ago, um, through other midwives, we've always had collaborating physicians that we've had to work with to provide services. And uh, this particular obstetrician, he approached me in 2015 and he asked that I go and work at his office and offer collaboration, but on, on his side, right? So I would see all of the low-risk people that were were looking for care. And then he would then go in and if I had a question or if there was someone that was outside of the standard of care of midwifery, then they would wait and see him. And so that was, you know, I worked there for two years and then I went to California but, uh while I was there, it really helped us you know realize how good it and how important it is to work together to really provide optimal care and so, when I got back to Puerto Rico, I approached him and I said, "Hey, what about you coming on site with us now and helping you know for our clients to see if we can have that collaborating care on site and so he agreed, and so now he comes one to two times a month and sees all of our clients that need that kind of collaborative support. And the same thing with Dr. Piovanetti, the pediatrician. She's actually my children's pediatrician. And and we have been working together for the past decade. She is a very accessible pediatrician, really available for consult. She sees our clients after they've had their babies. So we have that, you know, team care between the obstetrician, midwife, and pediatrician. Together, we really provide this. I think it's a very inclusive, equitable, evidence-based care to the birthing families. And she really worked really close together with us during the peak of the pandemic, so we can support the families with virtual learning or virtual support with our perinatal health kits that the families had. So that she would do uh, these appointments with the families and then also be able to have that equipment available for just like weighing the baby and any kind of objective data that was needed. So yes, that's been really great.
0: That's really amazing. Um, She sounds like a great person. And obviously you trust her because she's taking care of your children as well. And and those pediatricians really are. So I think one of the things that might be important is, you know, even though Puerto Rico is is part of the U.S., it's one of our territories, I am I have this feeling that not many people really know a whole lot about the island, that they don't really understand or know have a lot of knowledge about what the island looks like and the distance and some of the challenges with telehealth and even the rurality and getting from one part of the island to another. So, can you just kind of give us an overview of of just the island and who's living there and what it's what what's happening on the island and how far it ta- how long it takes you to get from point A to point B.
1: Well, first I'll start saying that Puerto Rico is a uh, unincorporated territory. So that means that we don't have a lot of the same privileges as we can say as many incorporated states within the United States. So our funding is definitely not the same as, you know, places in the United States. We have our own constitution on a local level, but it, it could be fought on a federal level. So really at the end, you know, it, it, the federal is what really is in charge. But at the same time, we can't vote for president. So we are, you know, we have to abide by these rules, um, guidelines, protocols that are very specific to the United States, not very culturally competent to the Puerto Rico, but we don't really even have a say in voting. So now if I was to move to the United States, I could vote, but here in Puerto Rico, I can't vote. So we're considered a territory or, or as some would say, a colony, one of the last colonies um, in the United States, of the United States. And it's a little hard, right? It's hard for us because there's control of how the money is spent and who decides, you know, we, now we have a, a fiscal board that really determines where the money is being put. It really affects social health and social care. Uh, So, you know, in that sense, on a social level, it it could be there's a lot of controversy about the United States and how it how it dominates our culture. But still, there is a a very deep connection to our culture and our traditions and our customs here. So it's it's a very thin balance. And and our country or our, our island is very, very rural. The majority of it, like if you go to the center of the island, it's very rural, uh, very mountainous. And then there's the coast. The infrastructure, not a lot of money is spent on infrastructure. So we have a decaying electrical system. People are, are and daily have blackouts, could be last one to two days. Education is not really number one for our government. So, you know, our educational system sometimes got is forgotten except if there's a place where teachers really work hard to make that school a really great one but it's really hard here to even sometimes consider sending your child to a public school because if the teacher doesn't go then there's no class right so it's on that level um so you know resources are scarce and that really influences that that access to really quality good quality education and then also, you know, the mean, the average income here in Puerto Rico is like sixteen thousand dollars a year, right? Did so you say
0: sixteen? Yes. Wow. Sixteen
1: thousand a year, yes. And so that also, you know, plays an important role in decisions being made, and mm-hmm. and even you know, health professionals, doctors, and lawyers. I mean, they get paid half of what you would get paid in the states. So there's a really big. Um, exodus of professionals leaving puerto rico to go work in the states because it's really hard you have to not only pay for private schools you're not getting paid half of what you are you know deserve to and the standard of living here the cost of living is really high and now especially with the pandemic we have seen that so many people from the states are coming to live here and it's bringing up our our rent prices a lot because people are able, you know, coming from the economy from the states, you can pay a lot more for housing and the food, everything is imported. So it's really, you know, it's a lot more expensive to eat, um, even buy food. So it's this very delicate balance. And we see it in our infrastructure and our social structure and the way that people birth here and the treatment that people receive when birthing and even some of the, you know, protocols of that determine, just how everyday life is, is lived here because there's just such little access because we're a colony, right? So being a colony, actually, what it can do is it, it kind of stagnates your growth outside of like, let's nurture what we have and try to get past this. It's always like, oh, we need to depend on something else or someone else to be able to survive. And that's one of the things that's happening, I would say, here in Puerto Rico. Sorry
0: if I went on a rant. <laughs> no, it, it's really fascinating having lived in Central America and traveled and, and traveled throughout Mexico. What I hear are so many of the similar challenges, and and not that we don't have similar challenges in the mainland, but the challenges that Puerto Rico is facing and continues to face from climate change to infrastructure, the rolling blackouts, which is you know currently in the news right now. You know, for somebody who's grown up on the mainland, it's it's a different it's a different experience. And it you know it's it it always amazes me when 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 we when I found out many many years ago that somebody on Puerto Rico who lives in Puerto Rico can't vote for president. Like to me, that was you know that was baffling as a young person to to even understand. And so it just it really when we think about like the social determinants of health and the inequities that exist on the island or the colony and how those drive birth outcomes or maternal outcomes. It's, it's a really you know huge issue for the island and for Puerto Rico. The midwifery program that you help to start and, and operate through Central Mom is actually well, where you're also a program director for the midwifery school as well in Wisconsin. And can you talk a little bit about the, the partnership between the school where you are the program director for the midwifery program and how that helps to support Synthramam in, on the island? Yes, so the, um, the midwifery
1: program, I didn't help start that. That, that was already started when they hired me. Uh, but, yes, I work with them. It's called Southwest Tech, uh, Southwest Wisconsin Technical College, and it is the only accredited public midwifery program in the United States so it's really accessible uh, to people all around the United States and Puerto Rico you know it's covered by any kind of Pell Grants that you would need or you know, financial aid FAFSA all of that and through the school which is really my my main job I would say as program director we are you know a lot of the students that are from Puerto Rico they study there and and it's a virtual program, so they do all of their academic work online through the virtual Zoom platform. And so he's been that way even before the pandemic. In that partnership, it's they're getting the education accessibly. I'm there to help the students that may have English not as their first language, so I can help with the translation. We've also hired you know tu- tutors, ESL tutors, to help those students that don't have that you know the the English language as their as their first language. And so that's
0: been really incredible. And we've helped create more midwives for Puerto Rico. That's incredible. Um, sounds like a great program. And one of the things that you and I talked about was the importance of midwives understanding and, and knowing the culture and the values of their patients, of the of the birthing people that they're working with. And I'm interested in how this program and the work that they do within their own clinics where they reside as well as in your clinic, how do we ensure that women are getting culturally responsive care, that they're getting reproductive justice as a forefront for the care that they're getting? And, and how does the program help support that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that I've really aspired to do as program director is to hire a, a diverse staff. Right, so it's really important to have representation. People that are teaching look like our students and have a common thread in terms of you know they can understand on on levels that maybe someone else can. So that I think that's that's really important as teachers and as providers as well. And then if if we don't have access to that, because here, for example, in Puerto Rico, we are training one of, you know, that live here, because there are other Puerto Rican Afro-descendant midwives that work in the United States, but here that work in Puerto Rico, we, we only have one right now. Her name is Paloma. She actually works with us. And so, you know, it's the challenge to really provide culturally competent care, especially for people from the United States, Afro-descendant people from the United States that are moving to Puerto Rico because we are seeing a high influx, even for our you know, local Afro-descendant midwives who were raised and they're culturally competent within this culture. So, you know, really finding ways to train, to get the tools necessary to trying to learn empathy and um, working towards that, but really trying to create a culture and, and create future midwives and teachers that can relate, right? I know it's it's hard and we can't always do that, but we do want to, we can't always do it because, you know, we need to train people. And once we've trained, then it's going to get easier. But it's something that, you know, we are really striving towards and hoping that that can be the goal, not only me as program director within the program, but also as a midwife in Puerto Rico and the director of Centro Mam.
0: I think that's so that's so critical, this whole idea of, of cultural humility and lifelong learning and, you know, meeting our patients where they are and really listening to them and providing this respectful care and making sure that there's, you know, there are decisions being made with the patient or with the birthing person and the midwife, so that it's in the best interest of the patient, right, so that they really get the care that they want and that they get the care that they need, right? Those are two really critical pieces of the work of midwifery one of the things that i think is you know midwifery um i think we were talking about it not too long ago just that you know it's it's something from from back in the day right so maybe you know when my grandmother was was birthing my my family and stuff like that that midwifery is something that's been around for a really long time and it's um it only recently became you know common again right so i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about just what it's like for midwives to be on the front line of perinatal care and how that really operates in Puerto Rico. Maybe kind of even walk us through um, one of your examples or one of your patients and just kind of, you know, where does midwifery care start? How does it show up? What is, what's, what's so great about it and why does it work so well and why is it producing such good birth outcomes in Puerto Rico?
1: Well, midwifery care specifically to our culture is very, we, we always like for the people to come as early as possible into our care, right? Because it helps create that connection with the families and the people that are seeking midwifery care. It doesn't always happen, but that is our, our hope and desire. And so usually people come to our center and, you know, we give a orientation of what our services look like. And then we do monthly visits with them. We just, we go through the, what the standard of care is for, perinatal care so it would be monthly visits and then every two weeks and then on a weekly basis and it's combined with the obstetrical care and we also offer uh prenatal classes and kind of like a community engagement right we like to do Mm -hmm. during COVID it was a little harder because we weren't letting you know we weren't opening up to the public so much and there was a lot of virtual stuff even though COVID hasn't ended but the peak of COVID (laughs) Now we have an outdoor area, so we can do more stuff outside, and that's been really helpful. And then, you know, we're with these families, and we really try to create connections with them and um, really give them the best care possible in terms of standard of care to help reduce risks, right? So at at Centro Mom, our main goal is to reduce risks. That's what midwifery care is about, right, to help identify if there is risk and manage or refer Um, on time to really have those good outcomes and I think that that's one of our gold standards we we believe everyone should have respectful care that it's a shared care it's not that midwives are the only ones responsible we really try to promote that shared care that yes we're here to help facilitate and help guide the people on their you know perinatal journey but it's very important for that family or that person to to be in charge as well because that's part of the whole autonomy behind health, right? That that, that shared care aspect of it. And so we promote that where we want to talk about reducing risks and we're not, you know, if someone has high blood pressure or if someone is showing signs of preeclampsia or if there is anything that is, you know, in our assessment that we do throughout the whole pregnancy sees we see that the person is not able to have a, midwifery-led birth then we you know we we really want that person to still have a a positive experience even if it is a c-section or even if it is you know uh, something that has to be intervened because we also know that you know not it's not just about a vaginal natural birth it's about being respected and it's about understanding and accepting and and working with it right and and being a part of that decision making process to really feel at ease and and, and not traumatized by your experience.
0: Right. I mean, I know, um, quite a, about two friends actually who became doulas after they had some traumatic, uh, birth experiences that they never wanted to go through that again. And they actually didn't want anybody else they knew. And, and that was what their kind of motivating factor was to either change their career and become a doula or add that onto their other existing career because of that traumatic experience that they had experienced. And, and certainly we don't want that for anyone, you know, that kind of makes me wonder a little bit about the data. Um, you know, I've talked a little bit about the data and just that the birth outcomes and the maternal outcomes for your patients are better than the outcomes for all of Puerto Rico. And so, you know, I've just got a couple of statistics here that you know that in Puerto Rico, the um, C-section rate is about 45%, right? And then for, for mujeres or for MAM, it's about 12 to 14% the preterm birth rate for the island is almost 12%, but for your clients, it's less than 1%. So, you know, what do you think is driving these amazing birth outcomes among your patients?
1: Part of it is the shared care aspect, right? Because a lot of people are really taking charge of their health, and, and that really makes a difference. I also think that a lot of people that come to us maybe have, you know, are have more access to that, that we even exist, right? There's still a lot of people in Puerto Rico that don't even know that midwifery care is something that is available or they don't, because we have to, you know, charge because we're not a government funded organization. Some people might not have the funding to be able to access our care, even though we do a sliding scale uh, and we have funding that we can offer grants or, you know, even, free of charge, but we can't do it for everyone because otherwise we can't. We don't exist, right? That we, we need to do something to help sustain the organization. And I also think that there's just this whole myth behind midwifery care, right? That, that they, a lot of people don't see it as something that is state, safe, even though our statistics show that it is. Worldwide statistics show that it is. The World Health Organization and the International Confederation of, Midwi- of Midwives have also shown that it is but it's something that within our culture and our cultural competency it was not really seen as something safe right it it became part of that whole smear campaign midwives that happened in in the 30s and 40s and 50s in the United States it you know translated over here so the people automatically thought oh if you're going to have a midwife then you you know you you're not going to have a safe outcome or a safe birth and so that still permeates, even though we are seeing little by little changes, because there is more access to, you know, social media and to the, the world wide web, and people can research and do their studies. But it's still not the majority, like people who, who look for midwifery care in, in Puerto Rico is less than 1%. Right? So I think that's one of the things. And I think that the people that come to us are actually looking for that specialty care. So they come already in with that. Idea of what it means to have a midwifery-led care, and they and, and they really want to work to, you know, make that a reality for them.
0: Yeah, the funding is so challenging, and not having Medicaid pay for it. Um, when we know that Medicaid pays for you know almost half of the births on the mainland and and probably just about the same percent in Puerto Rico, so if Medicaid is paying for these births but they're only paying for what we would consider traditional care, it sounds like there may be some opportunity for some from some policy changes within the Medicaid you know payment structure, and I'm wondering you know, is this a front that, that Centro um, gets involved with? Do they, Do they look at potential policy changes and how they can look at additional reimbursement for midwifery care so that it can be available for more women?
1: Yes, we We are working very close with one of our only independent senators on the island, Senator Vargas Pilot, to try to see how we can establish midwifery care as, you know, a human right, right? If someone wants yeah. to decide to have a midwifery-led birth whether it be you know in a hospital or out of hospital birth setting that that should be their right but it's a little hard here because going back to that whole colonial state that we're in right we have these influences from the United States on so many levels yet within the government itself the whole constitution is a very patriarchal system right Mm -hmm. and so even in the United States it's like the voice the, the prominent voice is the voice of a male dominated you know system and people don't understand it and and this these concepts have not been nurtured like if you look at Europe for example there was no smear campaign for against midwives it was completely the opposite it was midwives grow alongside of obstetricians and that's why they have the best maternal health outcomes in the world, right? Because there's this growth. There's this growth that is happening at the same time. Um, so yes, we are we really try to do these pol- political policy changes, but it's also, you know, it's hard because you're trying to change a whole system.
0: Yeah, the system is uh the system is the system. So, w- tell me about some of the innovative ways that Centro Mujeres operates with uh, trying to grow their funding streams. We've talked. To, I would love for you to share a little bit about the cafe and um, how the cafe financially contributes to the overhead, uh, to the budget. I guess.
1: Yes. Yeah, so when we first started the center, uh, we that was in 2010. We had a vegetarian cafe. Uh, because back in 2010, even though midwifery was starting to get a little bit of recognition, it was like less than it is today. And so in our vegetarian cafe, it was a center vegetarian cafe, people would go there to eat healthy foods and then they would see like drawings of breastfeeding and it was like, you know, very, you know, murals of pregnant people and their bellies and um, lots of promotion around, you know, prenatal classes. And so far, and people would come and be like, what is this about? What is this about? And they would be like, oh, we're a midwifery-led organization. And our funding helps support, create a fund for people to have accessible midwifery care. And so that really uh, started a whole new trend, right? So people would go there and learn about, besides wanting to eat vegetarian, healthy foods, and they would learn a little bit about midwives. And we were there from um, two thousand and ten in that particular place till two thousand and fifteen or fourteen. And then in two thousand and fifteen, we moved over to the clinical site where we are now. And we kind of you know put on hold a little bit the cafe because I wanted to focus more on the clinical aspect of it because we were all of a sudden like getting known as a cafe. <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't <laughs> want to focus on that. So we yeah. put on hold the cafe. And we started just focusing. That's when we brought in the doctor. And we did more of a clinical focus. And we brought in um, the university, the Southwest Tech. I started working with them. Mm-hmm. And we also started doing collaborative. We did an MOU with other midwifery un- uh, universities in Puerto Rico, um, in the States and um, MOUs with a local university focused on perinatal health and psychological services. So we would have students from the psychological, the psychology department coming in and, and offering their services. And and then once we had that established, we've been trying to, you know, we had to work a whole bunch to get our permits to open the cafe, but we finally got them during the pandemic. So that was like, ah, we can't really open, <laughs> but we got it during the peak of the pandemic. And now we're able to reopen and we, we opened up our garden area and we put lots of tables out there and we put a roof and and so through that fund we have a partner who she runs the cafe she actually had her baby with me years ago and then a a portion of that is brought over to the center so with that money that we make we can pay overhead and staffing and then eventually hopefully keep um, adding to our fund for subsidized care
0: Right. That's incredible. And one of the things um, you talked about was just the fact that you're you're cooking healthy traditional foods that are vegetarian. So really highlighting the Puerto Rican cuisine, but showing how to make it a little healthier without getting rid of the culture and the traditional food that is so important to, to the community and to the population. So, you know, that's a huge opportunity to know that, you know, you can have your traditional meal and it can be vegetarian and it can still taste delicious. So, I love that um, you know, and you so you know you get um, grant funding. You um, you have this cafe. You have some foundation funding. How else do you all receive funding? How else do you generate enough funds? I know you have a grant writer that's amazing, but um, how else do you do you support uh, the work you're doing?
1: Well, because our clientele, even though we do on a on a subsidized or sliding scale fee, uh, there's you know there's always people will come in and based on their annual income, they will pay for their services. So that part helps generate funding for us. We also have providers that come in, like we have a chiropractor that comes in every Sunday, I'm sorry, every Saturday. And um, a portion of that is donated to, because it's a low cost uh, chiropractic Mm -hmm. healthcare. And so there's a part for the chiropractor and there's a part for Centro Mom. Um, We also offer prenatal classes. So we're always doing things to, you know, support the community. And most of it is done on a community-based fee scale, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't charge so much in comparison maybe to private institutions or to the states, for example. So there's always a, it's accessible, I find, that it is inaccessible. But, you know, we without funding, we would always be in the red, <laughs> for sure, yeah. you know? So even if we have these these fees that people pay, we never, it's never really enough to cover our overhead.
0: Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Medicaid that exists? Do y'all have Medicaid expansion?
1: Our Medicaid is not like the state funded, right? So Medicaid is like, oh, you need so much money depending on the amount of people that are asking for Medicaid within, the, within your community. It's like the federal government grants this much of funding yearly, And so you got to deal with that, right? That's what the Medicaid is currently in Puerto Rico. And our scale is like, you know, to be able to really qualify for Medicaid, it's ridiculous. It's like you need to be making less than $1,000 a month. I mean, and part of it is also because, you know, health, our health insurance companies are, you know, they pay the doctors horrible. Like for a birth, you get paid $500 or something, or like $700. the doctors for prenatal appointments, if you take med- Medicaid, or it's not even called Medicaid, it's called vital. If you take that vital plan, you get paid like $10 per appointment. <laughs> the doctors, right? So they are completely underfunded as well. And they, it's it's definitely not the same. And it's a very lower scale pay rate that you would receive in the States. And it's a limited amount of people that can actually qualify for this.
0: That's so interesting. I mean, it's just, it's just such an interesting, I don't even know what the right word is, phenomenon. I don't know. I mean, I you know, I pulled some of the data around on insurance rates and uh, poverty. I mean, poverty is forty-seven percent in Puerto Rico compared to like fourteen point seven for women fifteen to forty-four, and so the poverty is just extreme in in the, on the island. And you know, inadequate prenatal care is pretty similar to the mainland. And then, you know, according to, you know, the data that I looked up, it does say that the uninsurance rate is lower in Puerto Rico than it is compared for the U.S., but not significantly. And so just having these these inequities around poverty and um, income and education really just contributes so much to all of the challenges for, for healthy birth outcomes and even providing care and having workforce shortages as well. So I just want to touch a little bit on COVID and telehealth and how Mujeres was really able to kind of pivot during COVID to be able to offer um, telehealth to, the, to your population, to your birthing people, and talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the successes that you were able to have and, and what you might be doing with these successes and these changes. You know, what are you going to keep? What worked? Uh, we realized at first, when it first all started, like, oh my goodness, we're
1: going to have to stop uh, seeing people for now until we realized what the heck is going on. And then at that moment, we saw that there were funding opportunities. So we decided to do some grant writing for creating perinatal health kits. So those health kits really were able to provide the families with uh, tools that would help them get to objective data, right? So objective data is something that is measurable, not just, you know, through what's subjective, what the person is feeling, but we can actually see the results. So for example, every family would get a blood pressure cuff and a pulse oximeter and a Doppler. And then we would give the families a training on all of these. And while the person was using them we would do virtual visits right so we can see them in person and we would discuss these results and they would do it at the same time while they were on on camera with us so we would make sure they were doing it correctly and we would listen and we would see the results and part of that it was really great for the families because they were able to be a part of that shared care right and realize oh okay if I you know if I eat this, I, I might have a little bit high blood pressure or I could yeah. monitor my weight better or, or even in the breastfeeding fe- period, like I could see that my baby's gaining weight and I don't have to be paranoid or worried or scared and, and then having the pediatrician on hand. So that was something that we will continue, even if it's not, you know, based on pandemic, we want to give our participants the, the tools they need to be able to really be part of that objective care model that helps everyone be a part of their decision making process. So that was something that we really saw and then also keeping virtual appointments even if it's we're not in the in the peak of a pandemic, right? So if people really need to come and do something online or even through phone visits and it's better that than not to come at all.
0: We're going to start to wrap up just a little bit, but, you know, one of the things you said earlier just talked a little bit about how less than 1% of of the population on the island is really looking for midwifery care uh, during their perinatal time or even preconceptionally, we hope. So how can we encourage and work with other community-based organizations, other healthcare providers, facilities, hospitals, traditional OBGYNs, family meds? Pediatricians to really help promote midwifery as an alternative to high-valued, respectful maternity care and postpartum care. What are some messages that we can we can be sharing with our healthcare providers, clinics, community-based organizations?
1: Well, something I have really learned in the past, you know, twenty-five years. I've been started my midwifery path in nineteen ninety-six. And in the beginning, I always thought that I needed to change something, right? I needed to go in and change it. And as years have passed and realizing that doesn't work, (laughs) you can't change anyone or you can't change systems, all you can do is create parallel systems, right? So for me, it's by creating a parallel system, which is that, okay, you can have the healthy birth outcome that you want and have it in a system that's not necessarily this obstetrical allopathic model of care. So it's more of a humanistic approach to care. And while you are you nurture that system, you're educating and you're opening up this whole new path of healthy standard of care. And so... For me, really the only way to create that change is not through trying to go into the system and change it because it's really hard to do that and it's almost impossible. It's finding people that have the funding to help make that change, right? Because through creating a system of funding that we can offer this, as a standard of care where it doesn't require you to be rich or to have that economic privilege or that even academic privilege that you can even go and look for a midwife and know that this is something but as something that is just as accessible as going in and going to have a your care with a with an OB that maybe only spends five minutes with you and then you have a traumatic birth and you have to end up healing from it just as simple for for people to access so that's where I think that we need to focus on changing. And that's what Centro Mom has been trying to do. We just need to find uh, the funding to get there.
0: Your passion for this work and your passion for the vision and the future of Centro Mom is just, it, it just resonates through your voice and resonates just as you speak about it and the, the whole premise of equity and equitable care, respectful care having midwives who can show up for their patients, for their birthing people and families, who can carry them through, you know, the, the the good and the bad of pregnancy and postpartum is just, it's incredible what you've been able to do over the last, you know, 10, 15 years um, in Puerto Rico. A couple other lessons that you've learned uh, I just want you to touch on are really about promoting nonprofit grassroots, social change, and and working with the community. If you'll just kind of give us a little bit of a keys to collaborative success?
1: Sometimes we come in so focused on our, our ideas being the only ideas and being the correct ones, right? And so really opening up ourselves to understanding another point of view and understanding maybe where this professional might have their you know, they, they see it in one way where maybe in midwifery care we can see it a different way and really coming together and speaking about it so we can come and really resonate as one to offer the best care. So it's almost like that non-judgmental. And then in terms of social change, one thing I learned as program director and professor last year is that a lot of times when situations that we can have and reactions that we can have or even you know within the whole birthing world and the birthing process and you know a lot of our actions or reactions are really based on our own personal traumas right or the traumas that are coming in to our care and really trauma-based care is sometimes trauma that we don't even know we have or people don't know they have or they carry and so that's part of like the really the importance of shedding that judgment and trying to be compassionate and not take it personally, maybe if we are feeling attacked or or because it's sometimes it's not really even about us, right? It's about what's coming through that. And so that's definitely something else I have learned and I've taken away from this. And just, you know, patience, 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 and not get frustrated. And, you know, giving up is not an option. And even if people die or, you know, like if I was to die before I could ever see the the fruits of my labor, it doesn't matter because at least I lived a life focused on something that I was really passionate about. And I really felt like I did something even if it didn't manifest in the moment it's almost like you know we are planting seeds of change so I definitely have come back with that because I think that a lot of us have faced the idea and the concept of mortality during this the peak of the COVID pandemic right and realizing that okay well hopefully I don't die but if I do die or if I do something happens at least I'm trying to you know I, I could try to do something that makes a change and helps the
0: future generations. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Vanessa. And thank you for listening, everyone. For more podcasts, videos, blogs, and maternal health content, visit the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center website at maternalhealthlearning.org. I'm Leslie Derizette, and again, we'll talk with you soon on the Maternal Health Innovation. This project is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, under grant number U7-CMC-33636, State Maternal Health Innovation Support and Implementation Program Cooperative Agreement. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.